0: Support for this podcast is provided by CRESA. cressa is the Occupier's Champion, the world's premier corporate real estate advisory firm, exclusively serving startup businesses and major global organizations alike. As a Portland pillar for over 25 years, Cressa partners with its clients throughout the entire project lifecycle, from workplace strategy and discovery, through the deal transaction and project management delivery of space. Cressa partners without conflict and applies integrated expertise to make your business better. Go to CRESA.com Portland connect with the Portland advisory team from that cast creative I'm Dan Bruton and this is the PDX executive podcast a show where I talk with inspiring leaders who are shaping the future of Portland Oregon every week i sit down with business executives startup founders and community leaders to dive into their career journey and get insights into the impactful work they're doing in our slice of the great pacific northwest everyone welcome back to the pdx executive podcast we're well into 2023 now against my I wanted the last year to kind of hang around a little bit longer but you know if you've been listening to the show you know I love interviewing founders I love learning about the startup scene here in Portland so I'm excited to have my next guest Tim Morgan who's the co-founder and chief technology officer for deep surface security and I got connected to deep surface um, a few years ago when they first started through a mutual uh, friend so Tim great to have on the show welcome Thanks for having me. So, yeah, I want to, you know, dive right into it. I would love to learn, you know, what Deep Surface does and maybe a little bit of the origin story as well.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, at Deep Surface, we have a vulnerability management product that sort of radically helps pretty much any organization who needs to deal with software vulnerabilities, helps those organizations prioritize what it is that needs to be fixed. Um, It seems like a simple thing, it is a simple thing, but as it turns out, this is you know, really costing a lot of organizations a lot of money in terms of time invested in IT and their security teams to figure out what they need to fix and, and really if those fixes are going to cause problems in production. Mm. Um, and so what we do is we um, really carefully model the, um, the threats in their environment. We understand exactly how an attacker might be able to use vulnerabilities in the technical context of their environment. We actually threat model every single little attack scenario that would mm. be possible with the vulnerabilities that they have to determine if somebody could realistically use it to get to something valuable in their environment, um, and that and that really allows us to to cut way down on the the amount of issues that are things they supposedly are supposed to fix, you know, um, and so just you know an order of magnitude fewer things that they need to work on. So it saves IT teams a lot of time. It makes, you know, it makes security folks heroes in their organizations because they're no longer asking for so much work to be done. Um, and uh, and it just it's just sort of the right way to do this kind of prioritization. And we found a way to automate it. And so that's the big innovation.
0: Yeah. And it was founded. And what year was it founded, Tim? Did you start the company? Um, 20,
1: 2017. Um, but I was working on that a little while, you know, a couple of years before that as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I want to break it down because there's the um, obviously the technology solution. But you mentioned kind of the people part of it. how your solution helps your platform helps those teams because before maybe they integrate your deep surface, like you said, it weighed heavy on the IT teams, right? So it's like, Mm -hmm. talk about kind of that. I mean, uh, helping, I guess the people part of it, just automate it and manage and work. How did it kind of work before? How does it work? without something like Deep Surface, at, usually at a within a tech team at a company.
1: The workflow traditionally for this kind of v- vulnerability management, this type of vulnerability management, um, is really that the vendors publish issues that they have in their software. These are basically regressions. These are bugs that happen to have mm-hmm. a security impact to software, and they, they release those every month or whatever cadence they release them on. And then they try to tell the customer, I think this one is a critical risk issue, or I think this is a high. Mm-hmm. I think this is a low. Whatever. That's all they tell you. But the, of course, the vendors don't really know how your environment works. That works fine when you're back in, say, circa 1998, and uh, you know the number of vulnerabilities being released can be measured in a, a few thousand a year. Right. Um, but but ha- if you if you watch the trend of how many vulnerabilities are being published every single year, it's growing by about 15 percent per year, and it's just the numbers are just staggering now. You know, just the number of things you're supposed to look at. And so, so 10 or 15 years ago, an IT person or a security person could be expected to look at every single vulnerability that came out, decide, does this affect me? Yes or no, make a quick determination. And then, you know, without much effort, be able to roll out the, the patches. Now with the volume, like you simply can't look at all of them. You know, you simply can't look at all the issues or understand them at any with any technical sophistication. And it turns out the vast majority of these issues still don't really matter. They're not gonna get you hacked. Hmm. But vendors always err on the side of caution and they're going to tell you it's a higher critical every time something right. like half of all CVEs are considered higher critical, you know, even though they really aren't or they are, but only in very specific situations. And, and so what we're able to do with this is, of course, automate that analysis for people so they know if it affects them. But, but yeah, that's the traditional workflow is that people would be expected to manually look at these things and determine, does this affect me and my the way I've got my um, software deployed? Um, so, so it's a complex question actually to answer that, um, on a CVE by CVE basis a vulnerability by vulnerability basis.
0: Yeah. It's helpful for the, you know, the, the lay person like me who, you know, in this, obviously you work, you're working very much with technology teams, but you have to, I assume explain it across, you know, if someone's in marketing or, or, or whatever, how it all comes together. And, and you talked about just this kind of explosion of security vulnerabilities and that makes sense if there's other other vendors risk management wise they're going to mark most of them or uh you know that they're critical right so what do you kind of attribute a lot of this explosion in the security i guess uh vulnerabilities to other than obviously just the internet growing but and how well do you think i guess corporate kind of technology teams are prepared for it and you can be as candid as you want
1: (laughs) (laughs) well you don't want to ask me to be candid Um, (laughs) well i think a big part of it um of of this explosion is really just down to more and more sophistication of the security community at large to understand the types of vulnerabilities that exist you know you you look at memory corruption problems in in a c plus plus application from you know the early 2000s and a lot of people might assume those issues were not exploitable Mm -hmm. but then you know, ten years later, people figured out how to exploit them, mm-hmm. and so you have a backlog of vulnerabilities in browsers and operating systems that go back to the early '90s, where these are these have been bugs for that long and just nobody noticed. Wow. And so you have you have poor software practices in the early days of like the dot com boom, um, where you have a lot of this. These companies got established. They, you know, honestly, they they wrote pretty buggy code, and now we're cleaning up that mess um, decades later. Yeah. Um, so that's a big part of it. I mean, if you just look at the the volume of CVEs which vendors are publishing them and which apps those are in. We're talking the big desktop applications, the workstation stuff, the browsers, stuff that, that literally this code is decades old. Um, mm. And so we're just now figuring out that, oh, actually, this is a problem. We need to fix it.
0: Interesting. Okay. Well, thanks for kind of breaking that down a little bit. And I, I want to talk about the the business a little bit. Again, uh, you've been around for a few few years now. You have gotten some funding, right? Can, can you share mm-hmm. Is that public? Can you share some of the funding you've gotten? Yeah, I think or? I think
1: we're in the neighborhood of a uh, 6 and a quarter million total funding i am raised so far. Okay.
0: Yeah. How was that process and I, I know you've raised some of it from local investors, right? And mm-hmm. so h- how's the process the fundraising process been and then I know you raised it, you know, over these past few years when our world's been a little uh, you know, crazy, but how if you're raising still, how do you see it now? I mean in terms of Hey, let's be honest, there's some economic uncertainties and, and things like that. I'm just sure. curious where you can share with other my founders that might be listening.
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, well, for us early on our, you know, we, we existed for a few years before we tried to raise, um, we were really bootstrapping things for a while, okay. um, working with people we knew to tr- test out beta versions of the product, early versions of the product. So we, we actually, we went, we actually got the product quite a ways before we went out for funding. And then, when we finally um, did start to raise, um, we were just starting the process of raising when the pandemic broke out.
0: <laughs> so, in 2020, <laughs>
1: beginning of the year, here we are trying to raise money, and then all of this uncertainty just got thrown into the mix, right? Um, so that made it pretty challenging in those early rounds um, to to raise. But we did. In the summer of 2020, we we raised our um, our first million and and got our started getting our team hired. And then um, then later on, you know, after we had shown some progress and You know, the key thing really being that investors wanted us to see that we had sold to people that we don't know (laughs) because we already had customers through people, through our networks. They wanted us to prove that we could sell to someone we never met before. And and we did that and we were able to, um, you know, really show that the product had a lot of legs outside of our, our own network. But I will say about those early funding rounds that, you know, one of the things that we kind of, we kind of got a bit frustrated about was just in the Portland community itself, the Various investment groups just—they they had a really hard time understanding what it was we were trying to sell. You know, they just didn't understand. Mm-hmm. Infosec didn't have mm-hmm. a lot of context around security um, and what the, this product world looks like. And so we had a, we had a lot of trouble kind of helping helping them understand what it was we were doing. And so the early rounds were, round was really primarily a lot of angel investors who were in security, who worked in you know, who had lived mm-hmm. in that world, um, rather than um, you know larger you know um, venture yeah. funds and, and you know or, or seed venture funds and that sort of thing. So I think if we were in a different city, I think that might have been different, you know, might have been a little mm-hmm. bit easier um, just because there's there's groups with more experience um, in mm. cybersecurity. But um, but yeah, later, later on, um, you know, once we showed that we could uh, that we could sell the people we didn't know, then the second right. round, you know, was, uh, well, you know, wasn't too, I don't know. I, it's always hard to race. <laughs> I, I would say they seemed a little bit more certain that we were able to raise. And then, um, and then after that, it was, you know, it was really all about scaling up, figuring out how we could, we could uh, stuff the top of our funnel and um, the sales side and, and be able to just get in front of a lot of people. Um, and that's, mm-hmm. and that's gone well this year as well.
0: That's great. I want to get into that, whatever you can share, but going back to just, uh, you know, Portland, this cluster of investment that's, I guess, yeah, you know, securities traditionally not you know, a bastion of security companies here in the Portland area, Mm -hmm. right? So there seems like there's been a few that have either been acquired by bigger companies of other things. So, and then you really, you know, tapping into your network, it sounds like initially to get product market fit, right? And is that the, Mm -hmm. the, the, can you, can you share like the, the importance of doing that? Cause you, I like how you're talked about, you know, you already had a pretty established network and I think you worked with some pretty big companies from what I understand to, to, to beta and find that product market fit, uh, before you even raise money. So like, how critical is that before, you know, going out and raising more money? Cause when money's flowing easy, it seems like people don't do that. Right. Mm-hmm. So sure. I don't know if you can share about that process.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, you know, I had not given you much of my background, but I spent about 15 years as a penetration tester. So okay. what that means is I would work as a consultant to hack into people's stuff and then help them fix it. Okay. So I, you know, I had a lot of um, folks in my network who I had e- either worked for before or worked with or what have you. And so that was really kind of the starting point. And when I ha- when I had the idea for the product, I really wanted to you know get it get a lot of eyes on it to see like, do you think this is a good idea? Should I embark on this really difficult? a challenging thing of trying to start a company around it. And and so having the, that peer feedback was huge. You know, just being able to get their thoughts on how how it, you know, would work for them or with other customers at places that they've worked before. And then that that's just really how we could figure out the product market fit pretty early on. Yeah. That, you know, this is how it would drop in in a typical organization. And um, yeah, so that was a really big deal. And then obviously some of those folks became our first customers in the beta program. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, just having that, you know, those folks to interact with and, and work out the kinks of how you deploy, how you um, deal with the challenges of unique environments. You know, I, one of the challenges in our area is, you know, you can go try to build a test environment that has, you know, a bunch of servers and workstations and whatever else in it to try to test your software on. You're never going to be able to build an environment that represents reality. Hmm. you just can't it's just mm-hmm. too complicated there's too many different variables and so really in a way those early beta customers end up being your QA right they end mm-hmm. up helping <laughs> you figure out what it is you you didn't know you couldn't anticipate yeah. about the real world and allowed us to really iron out all those kinds of technical issues um in those early early phases so um so yeah so anyway that's always been really helpful to get get the product going
0: that's great we'll talk about the team now I mean you've got some funding obviously you know scaling up the team um how many you know can you talk about the, the types of folks you have are they here in Portland are they distributed um, just kind of makeup of the, the company yeah.
1: yeah we we are primarily in Portland the majority of our team is here um, uh, but we do have a few folks scattered across the US and 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 some folks helping out for South America as well and it's basically roughly split 50/50 between engineering and the go-to- market team
0: yeah talk about the go to market I mean you talked about that a little bit and you're you're getting good you know, traction on that. Your B2B company, I think everybody likes to know, like, especially on a, like a market development B2B, what's working for you, whatever you can share, you know, Uh, I would love to learn that. I'm a marketer myself. So I'm kind of curious what kind of things have helped you get traction.
1: Yeah. Well, in, you know, in security, cybersecurity, it's, uh, you know, word of mouth is huge. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I think a lot of security folks are not super receptive to to marketing outreach um, mm-hmm. they don't they don't buy a lot of the marketing literature what they read there um, you know you really got to prove things to them and so what's what's been successful for us is really just showing you know, don't tell them show them and as much as you can show them what the product really is and what it does um and that and that speaks for itself um when whenever we um make contact with somebody with a, with a technical background who's lived in vulnerability management at all and they see what we're doing they're like oh I've never seen this before. You know, I mean that we mm-hmm. it's really for us at least it's really easy to get that first um that first call relatively easy um, yeah. just, be, just because the mark you know just because of how the product works and what it um, what the value proposition is. What we found though is that, you know, the challenges for a startup is, you know, you really you really want to land some deals early, right? You don't you don't want to have to drag out uh, conversations for years on end to try to close deals. And so what we found was really important is to target the right sizes of com- companies. In the right sectors, so that you can get a call with any of them. The, the challenge yeah. is closing the deal and, yeah. and making sure that you aren't dealing with a lot of red tape around deploying an evaluation that takes six months to get the evaluation deployed, or you know, uh, just just going through many many layers of budget approval to try and to try to close a deal. So, th- the smaller orgs allow us to um, you know allow, allow us to get through the process a lot faster, improve traction um, uh, a lot more easily, and especially whenever you have someone who is a who has budget authority who also is technical and gets mm-hmm. your value from like really fundamentally gets your product, mm-hmm. then it's a whole lot easier to get that traction within that organization. Um, just because of their, their genuine interest in what it is we're doing.
0: I love it. Don't tell me, show me. I mean, that's mm-hmm. such great.
1: That's great advice for like marketers. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I think that applies to every step of the process, you know, yeah. what, what do you put on the website? You know, don't, don't make me fill out a bunch of forms and, t- and write a bunch of text. you know, a wall of text, just show yeah. me a video. 30 second video like that goes so much further than uh, than just trying to explain to me how amazing the the product is. And the thing about the thing about any text you write and what I found is any marketing language you use, even if you have a very unique description of how your product works and it's it's clearly different than everybody else, every other competitor will immediately steal that language, even if they don't do the same thing, even if they are doing anything close to it, they'll steal that language if it sounds good and they'll just use it. And that's so so true. Yeah. But if you could just show them what your product does, then it's just a lot more effective and, and more it differentiates you a lot more easily.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And well, it sounds like, too, like you mentioned, you l- focus early on on, um, you know, those specific sectors that you can have some of that speed of deployment. Can you share like which ones those you don't have to call companies, but just like the type of, you know, industries or sectors you mentioned?
1: Yeah. I mean, our, um, the, the areas where we've had the most success are definitely in uh, things like financial services. Hmm. um, and in, um, quite a bit more likely lately in manufacturing and, um, and also healthcare for us, you know, what it comes down to is, is the cost of patching, the cost of making fixes to an environment. And if the cost is high because you have weird equipment or you have a high risk of that equipment breaking, when you, you try to, you try to apply a security update to an MRI machine. Okay. You really don't want that thing to go down. You really, I mean that, you know, those are very expensive things. And so, whenever there's a high cost to it, then it makes more sense to do more work to analyze, you know, what it is you should be fixing. And mm-hmm. so that's when, that's when it, there's a really stronger value proposition. But um, yeah, so it, that's for us anyway, that's where we've been fitting in the best so far.
0: That's great. Um, can you share what's next? What's next for Deep Surface? How are you looking to expand this year and some other things that might be uh, you know, coming down the pike for you, whether it's get new team members or areas you're focused on internally, whatever you can share, I think is super helpful for, for folks.
1: Yeah. For us, it's really just executing our plan that we started um, uh, uh, about a year ago when we Mm -hmm. did our last uh, raise. Um, You know, a lot of customers um, in our world, um, you know, they'll try out a product um, in one year and then they'll buy it in the following year. And so Mm -hmm. we built a really big, um, you know, top of funnel of tons of more people who are interested in the product and now we're just working on closing deals. So just the mechanics of, of getting through the sales process with enterprise software yeah i mean obviously you know it, it has become a little bit more challenging with the economic conditions um that mm-hmm. are that are facing us but mm-hmm. at the same time you know in my experience i've been through several recessions in this field and what i've always found was that with cybersecurity, it, it really doesn't fluctuate nearly as much as other areas hmm. just because um you know in in some cases people are criminally liable if they don't keep their security up <laughs> and, right you know? there's regulation and so Yeah, they don't, they tend not to cut back on security for a long period of time. They might, they might pause on cybersecurity spending for a few months, but you generally see that budget come back. And so anyway, so that's, we're just, um, you know, there might be a little bit of waiting out the storm, but I think things are going to be looking good towards the end of this year.
0: Yeah. And it even sounds like your solution or platform is, and there's more opportunity potentially, you know, not to be uh, pessimistic in a a downturn because you're automating a lot of things. So Mm -hmm you know, for internal teams that could uh you know, will be more a little cost efficient potentially. I I'm not sure. So that's yeah, that's that's great. Uh so you I know you've you've started companies before. I always like to, you know, as we kind of get towards the end of a conversation, like share just what you learned running a company. (laughs) You know, especially (laughs) you've been like you said, you've you've been through a couple of these cycles uh you know probably last in 2000 2008 and here we are now and anything you can share just about leading a startup and uh where to focus on is is helpful for people looking to start companies or in the trenches right now too right
1: yeah boy I, there's so many things i've learned um so having you know and i certainly have started companies in the past but they were not um uh software companies and that's it's a mm-hmm. very different animal than say Starting a consulting company or, or right. what have you, but one you know one of the things that definitely they they always say, and then it's if you haven't been in it, it's kind of hard to understand. But it's really about it's really important to have a great management team. It's really you know your founders that you start the company with. Um, it's really important that they're um, that they're effective at the things they do, and that um, and that they're really they're really dedicated to you know seeing it through. You know, and and you know, so that's that's super important, and that's you know. The, everybody will tell you that when you're going out for fundraising the investors are going to be looking at your team is this the right, right team is this the right team and they care much less about the product than you might think you know me coming from a technical background you think no but the product's amazing it's like no they they care about the team and it, mm-hmm. it really does matter um and so it's it's hard to put a you know a finger on exactly what it is that makes a good team but mm-hmm. but it is it is super important um to to make sure you're getting started with the right um with the right mix of talents and um and, and that sort of thing
0: that's great, you know. And you know, as we end here, I always like to ask about Portland. I mean, it's, uh, it heartens me that you know a lot of your company, your team is based here. Um, how's running a company from Portland and starting one in Portland? Just uh, you know.
1: Yeah, I'm, I mean, it's I don't know how to compare it with anywhere else, <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I but I will say that you know Portlanders, Portland companies definitely like to support Portland companies, and so it has been easy to have conversations with folks locally. It's always nice mm-hmm. to have that community and and support of of locals. Uh, it's obviously it's been a little awkward doing do, during doing this during pandemic um yeah. just because of not being to get face to face with a lot of those customers when you would have expected to otherwise. Um right. and so so feel it feels like it you know you're almost not in any particular city. You're just you know yeah. having phone calls, zoom calls all day long with whoever um from wherever. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I think, I think just that, that community vibe has always been really powerful. And, um, and as we started to have more in-person events again, then, um, you could really feel that people are genuinely interested in finding out what you're doing and what you're working yeah. on and that kind of thing. So it's been nice.
0: That's great. Well, Tim, where can people learn more about Deep Surface and just kind of follow along and uh, what you're up to?
1: Yeah, well, obviously you can go straight to our website, deepsurface.com. And I think that's probably the best. There's, there's quite a bit of content on there about, um, you know what our products all about and what where our company's going and so yeah that's probably the best place
0: sounds good tim uh, you know thanks so much uh you know like i mentioned to you before we was recording uh you know i heard about deep surface when you had i think a prior name a few years ago and it's just mm-hmm. great to get an update and um see you grow so i'm excited to follow along myself so appreciate it thanks for joining the show
1: yeah thanks for having me
0: the pdx executive podcast is a production of that cast a Portland, Oregon podcast agency that partners with brands to create custom podcasts. You can learn more at thatcast.com and please take a moment to subscribe and rate the podcast as well.